Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Welcome everyone to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I am like thrilled today, a little terrified, but also super thrilled today because I have Alicia T. Crosby on the line today. She is an author. She's a public speaker. She is incredible on Twitter, blows my mind with her tweets. I've learned so much from her and she is getting ready to publish a book. And so I'm so excited to talk with her today about religion and identity And I'm going to let her introduce herself, the things she wants to tell you about her story, how she got into this work, and a little bit about her book before we dive into religion and how it influences our identity and the way we move in the world. So welcome, Alicia. Thanks for having me on, Terry. (laughs) I am super pumped to be with you and your listeners. Hi, listeners. (laughs) Um, Oh, gosh. It's always so, like, weird when people ask you to, like, introduce yourself. It's like, what do I want you to know about me? Mm -hmm. Um, So as Terry shared, I am a writer, speaker, podcaster. Oh, God. I am currently the community cultivation curator for Evolving Faith. Um, I am a consultant. I do justice education. I do a lot of things. I wear a lot of hats. Um, I'm a minister working on like my ordination process right now. Um, yeah, I got a lot of irons in the fire, but like, like at the end of the day, like all the work that I do comes back to wanting to cultivate and curate spaces for belonging and where people can like kind of sort out like who they are and what they believe and why they like hold true to the things that they hold true to. So whether I'm writing or speaking or consulting, that's really what it comes down to. I just want people to be and to like do some interrogation work around their being. Yeah. To be comfortable being themselves, but also aware Mm -hmm. because we are Mm -hmm. a multiplicity of all kinds of things we picked up in childhood and from our Mm -hmm. culture and just all of that and just being curious about what's in there that maybe isn't serving us or serving others. Like what isn't serving society even mm-hmm. in the ways that we want to show up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Because like, you know, I'm so glad that you like put it that way because I think there's like people who people are and like who they desire to be and who they say that they are. And it's just like, all right, so like, how do we get these things all to like kind of be in alignment with one another? And so, yeah, like there's a big part of my work that like does that. Yeah. Well, and it's such a different story who we think we are or who we say we are and who we actually are. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, right now we're recording this in January. I think a lot of us are becoming aware of who we say we are or who we want to be and who we actually show up as in the world, those can be two different things as, Mm -hmm. you know, we're having to grapple right now at this moment with any New Year's resolutions we've made Mm -hmm. that maybe we're starting to struggle with or have been struggling with for the Mm -hmm. last couple of weeks. Yeah. So this is a great time to record this and to talk about this. Yay for New Year's (laughs) and for thinking about things like this, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
So what got you into this work? What is your story and how you evolved to this place where you've been talking about religion and identity and helping people really root into who they are and feeling comfortable being that person? Mm -hmm. So it's so funny. It's like, I'm like, I'm thinking about like my trajectory here, right? Like it's actually a really, really good and interesting question. It's like, how do we end up at this place? So I'm a pastor's kid, right? I, my dad has been a minister in the Black Baptist tradition since like I was a baby. And so like, I like joke sometimes. It's like, I was that kid who was like out the womb and in the pew like the next week. It's kind of true. Um, but I am a third generation minister. My great great grandfather was minister, and then my dad is, and then now I am. And our ministries all look very, very different. Um, but I've got to like go back that far, like looking at like ancestors, elders, and then like myself, like from my formation, because it all plays into like how this becomes like work and also like kind of vocational identity and like family stuff and whatevs. Yeah. But um but yeah, like I've always been like super curious around things related to faith, like and particularly around access. It's like how do we make things more accessible to folks? Um more understandable to people, like involve more people in the community. And that's like an impulse that was in me since I was a little girl. So um, one of my favorite stories to tell about myself is like how I challenged my pastor, like when I was seven, because um, I came from a tradition that had an open communion table, meaning that when it came time for communion, right? Like this, this ceremony sacrament where we like look at the life of Jesus and like look at communal bonds. It was like open. Anybody could do it. And then that man closed the table and I'm like, bruh, what, where, where Where in the Bible is this? And I remember going in my little like red, like my first Bible type thing. I don't even know what it was called. Flipping there. I might've even looked at my parents' Bibles and I couldn't find like any evidence for like why he was justifying closing the table and like making it so only the baptized or only like these elect people could, could have communion. And so, like, the resistance to, like, stuff like that started real early. Um, and, yeah, like, in college, I started, like, a, like a scripture study. Um, but was, like, very intentional about, like, getting into the scriptures themselves and it being, like, non-sectarian. And so, like, I probably was, like, the only Bible study on campus that had, like, Hindus and Buddhists and, like, non-affiliated folks there because we were just, like, okay, so here's this wisdom text. Let's talk about it and see what could or couldn't apply to our lives. I adore that. And I love that you've been this person your whole life. It's probably evolved how it's shown up in your mm -hmm. behavior, but you have been this person for forever. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so yeah. So like in terms of it becoming like a, a thing around like, oh, wow, this is the thing you do like professionally. I don't know. I just kind of fell into it. Like, like my studies, like in my undergrad were, um, interdisciplinary and I wanted to like understand about like how people like acquire knowledge and like spiritual knowledge was a part of that so pastoral studies was one of my concentrations but also education and psychology were were concentrations as well because I know that they are cognitively things that we absorb as well as systemically in terms of the education system so yeah it's just like these curiosities and these questionings and wonderings and musings eventually led me down a path after a couple of like, you know, career shifts in my, my twenties where I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to be a professional question asker and do facilitation work where I ask questions around things 
um, started doing it through a nonprofit I started in Chicago in 2015 with a friend. I was a co-founder of something called the Center for Inclusivity. We shut that down in 2019. Um, and that was when I came back to school. It's like a long story, y'all. <laughs> I love but, this. Keep going. You're making, but, I mean, it's helping us get to know you. Yeah. And I feel like that is so important, that connection as we talk about these important topics. So please mm. keep going. Tell us yeah. about you. Well, the, the last bit is like, eventually I settled into consultancy. So um, at my nonprofit, like, which I had like, just so many wonderful experiences working with my co-founder and our board and the communities who we would connect with. Our last year of operation, like my board sat me down and they're like, look, you need to do this, but we actually think that you'd be like, you'd be better served and people would be better served if you did this as an independent like contractor. You don't need a nonprofit behind this. You just need to go do this issue. And so that's how I've been doing it like exclusively through consulting, like on my own since 2019, but like informally I've done it like dabbled since like 2015. So I'm going to a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then in there, you said you went and you got, you went back to school a couple of times. Yeah. yeah. You were telling times. me that you just got a master's at Duke and my mind is blown. I have tons of questions there too, but I'm going <laughs> to not today. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a master's from theolo- of theological study from Duke. I got that in 2020. And in 2016, I got a master's in social justice from Loyola University, Chicago. Yeah. Okay. So these are incredible backgrounds between, you know, being raised in a preacher's family and mm-hmm. then also the theological degrees and the social justice and just all of that. Oh, I'm so excited to <laughs> dig into because I know all of that's going to play into what we're talking about today. Yes, let's so let's go. go ahead and dig in and let's talk about how you feel identity is created. Like what are the different parts that you feel play into that? And if mm-hmm. like any important parts that you want us to know about that? Um, so how identity is created, that's a massive question. I know. Massive. I know. I, I'm so sorry. That's so like Terry's totally starting small, y'all. Totally small. <laughs> okay, let's start with in. how did you feel like being raised in the religion you were raised in with the preacher's family? And I'm sure like lots of expectations with him being the preacher. Mm-hmm. How did that shape your identity? We'll start smaller. I know. <laughs> It, it's like I took a huge one that's like the universe big. And then now we have one that's like the Milky Way big. <laughs> I can deal with the Milky Way. <laughs> um, um, it's a little a bit less existential than like the universe. So, um, I mean, like being for those who are preacher's kids, y'all already know it's hard. Like there is a way that a microscope is on you in terms of people like looking um looking into like a your world that's a little bit like a fishbowl. And so there are ways that like ministerial families like have like eyes on them at all times and just judgments that people make about you, um, even if they don't really know you. So like, I mean, even in social spaces that I was in, I had folks, you know, and it's so funny, I feel like I heard a pa- another pastor's kid say this recently, but like people had like running bets on if I would become like a saint or a stripper. Like, like literally they would tell me this and it's just like, what the hell y'all like yeah, there it's are only many, those two options. Like there yeah. are many things that I could become in life. And like, those are just two of them. Yeah. But I mean, but as a, a PK, like it's either you're going to be the wild child or you're going to be like the super like pious individual. And like, the reality is that we contain multitudes. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, we don't have to put things on a binary, like, no, ew. Um, but yeah, like there's a way that people are like paying attention to your movements and even just like sometimes from your own family, there's like a pressure to con- comport yourself a certain way because, you know, you're representing your family and your church community and, you know, in many ways, God. And like, I'm not actually mad at that anymore because the reality is, is that anybody who professes to be a person of faith ends up being an ambassador for God in some way, shape or form. Mm. The issue is, is like, what do we constitute as being godly, right? And like, what permissions do we give people to be fully who they are so people could understand more about the nature of God. Oh, I love how you put that because so often what is godly is also very binary, that it's Mm -hmm. either this way or it's that way. It can be very um, divisive. And Mm -hmm. if we are a multitude, which we know that we are, we're multifaceted, Mm -hmm. God must be. Well, absolutely, because we're image bearers of the divine. So, like, God can't have, like, this flat personality. Like, if we're these, like, robust, dynamic, like, bits of creation that are made in the image of God, then it means that, like, our creator has to be even more dynamic of a personality and create facets because there are literal billions of people on the planet, and they all are image bearers of the divine. It's like, so what does that say about, like, the magnitude of who God is. Well, and I love looking at each person that you meet as a different facet of God, mm-hmm. a way to get to know God. And so our diversity at that point no longer becomes a conflict or a problem, but just a way to get to know God better. Mm-hmm. Oh, if only that's people thought beautiful. Like that. <laughs> right? Well, you just blew my mind. I just like, you oh, know, yay. that was something I just learned. I'm like, oh, I'm having this like beautiful image in my head of how each person is a puzzle piece to help us Mm -hmm. understand the nature of the divine better. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's kind of why God is unknowable. We don't have the ability to know 7 billion people, right? Mm -hmm. And that's just the people who are in like our world at present. That's not the folks who have been and not the people who are to come. And so like, you know, over the course of this thing we call time, there are more things that are, you know, known about the divine image and the divine person than we knew before. And we learn those things a little bit more quickly um, as time goes along and as people evolve. Yeah. Well, and as we have, I think, even more access to being able to see people in different cultures. I mean, it used to be that Mm -hmm. you had to travel. I mean, Mm -hmm. whenever I was a teen, we had to travel or watch TV or something, but it's Mm -hmm. not always accurately portrayed in the media, what Mm -hmm. different cultures are like. It's so wonderful, I find, to be able to access people's thoughts from different parts of the world, to hear mm-hmm. their experience, to hear their desires, their wants, their their trauma, even, mm-hmm. and to understand what it's like to be them. Mm-hmm. I think that helps us get to know each other more, too. Yeah, I would agree. So in your book, whenever you're writing about identity, what are the main keys that you want people to know about their identity and how it's shaped? What are kind of the big messages that you want people to know? Yeah. I mean, so 
this is hard because this is definitely a project that's like still in formation. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely in the book proposal writing stage and haven't like gotten to the meat of all the things I want to say. And even some of the things that I thought that I've wanted to say have shifted so much. So just for context, like, you know, when people like get ready to write books, like sometimes like folks think it's like an instantaneous thing. Y'all, it is not. I have carried this project in my spirit in some iteration or form for like eight years, if not longer. Yep. Like longest gestation period for a human ever. <laughs> yeah. But, I think the book writing phase, especially the first one is oh the gosh. longest gestation phase ever. I have it's one wild. that I like write little scratchy notes about and they're like all compiled. They don't make any sense. I still mm-hmm. don't know what the book is about. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. It's like, it takes forever. And so I'm finally in a place where I was like, okay, yes, these are the chapters. And yes, this is like the introduction. I've actually like written out my introduction. And so One of the big things identity-wise that's important for me is actually the exercise of agency as it relates to identity. So, and that's one of the things like as a writer, as a minister, as someone who sees this as a tool of facilitation, right? Like books and words mean the world to me. I've always loved them. But one of the things that's a challenge is like when people write in a way where you can't talk back, where you're not in conversation. And so like I've put it in my introduction, like I want people like, yell at me, talk to me, like, let's have a conversation, scribble in the margins, like mark this book up, throw it if you're pissed, cry, like engage it. Mm. Because like the reality is like, there's too much of our lives, especially for those of us experiencing marginalization, but not exclusively because this happens even with people from dominant cultures. Like we're told that we can't engage each other. Honestly, we can't emote fully and screw that. Yeah, absolutely not. How can we get to know all the different facets, like you said, if we can't show up authentically, if we can't emote, if we can't and, mm-hmm. share our experience and and forget about sharing our experiences, just acknowledging them for ourselves. There are tons of folks who walk around don't who don't have a really good like solid sense of self because Mm -hmm. of the ways in which like the world and particularly the religious world that they're immersed in has told them to shove shit down. Mm -hmm. Sorry if I'm not supposed to cuss. No, go for it. We're good. (laughs) We're turning a new leaf this, this year. I'm just like, anything goes, we're, we're all about full expression here. So go for it. But like, that's the thing. It's like, you know, At its best, religious culture can be beautiful, like grounds for human flourishing, but at its worst, it can be incredibly suppressive. It's almost like, you know, when people put guardrails like on this and engage in gatekeeping in religion, because religious identity like forms so many other things, including like ethical living, right? So Mm -hmm. this is why it's so important for me to talk about religion and religious trauma and violence and in my work in different ways is because religion is the thing that even helps you figure out who it's okay to be in the world. Like, and that includes an identity that you already possess. So there are like really toxic, like, you know, religious ideologies rooted in white supremacy that tell us that we are colorless, that we don't have racial and ethnic experiences of the world because our only identity is in Christ. And that's bullshit. At the end of the day, like I am a Black U.S. American woman who has experiences that I've gone through because I am a Black U.S. American woman. Mm -hmm. And then the same is true for our, like our sexuality. Like I'm a queer person and I have to accept my queerness 
in order to be able to like live more fully in the world. And the denial of that queerness is oppression and oppression is suppression of my identity. And that's something that I went through for a very long time because yes, I grew up in a pastoral family, but that also came with certain degrees of conservatism because of what my family held to be true and the churches we were in held to be true when I grew up. And so kind of like circling back to your question about identity and how it plays in, religion has the ability to impact what identities you hold onto, what identities you deny, and even what identities you think are possible and are valid. Yeah. And I want to get your take on this. When we deny certain parts of our identity, I don't feel like they go away. I feel like they Mm -hmm. get stuffed inside of us and they metastasize. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think about it like energy, right? Like one of those like basic principles we like learn in science, like when we're kids is that like energy just is right. It's either kinetic, right? It's active or it's potential. It's stored. The same is true about identity. It's either active or it's stored, but it's still there regardless. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what do you feel like happens whenever that identity is stored? (sighs) Lots of things. First of all, it's isolating, right? Because Part of what identity and the identification and articulation of identity is like helps us find people with similar experiences to us in the world. Shout out to like our social science kids, because that's a realization that I'm able to come to through y'all. But like, that's what it does. It's like when we identify as X, Y, Z, right? Like using whatever language is available to us, like in the era in which we live, it helps us find others who who know what it's like to like live in that particular thing. But it also like just gives you language for your experience. Because when you find that community or if a community is already existing, somebody somewhere spoken about it, written about it, made a, a YouTube, left some artifacts behind, made some art that reflect the reality of this existence. And that is powerful. Mm-hmm. It's and so we, powerful to know mm-hmm. I'm not alone. I'm not broken. I find that a lot of people come to that conclusion that Mm -mm. if they don't fit in in the communities in which they're raised or in the ideologies in which they're raised Mm -hmm. and they have to stuff those parts of themselves because our brains need a story to make sense of things. Mm -hmm. So often our little kid brains come to the conclusion of there's something wrong with me. I Mm -hmm. am the problem. I am Mm -hmm. broken. And Mm -hmm. so finding communities or even one other person Mm -hmm. who says, yeah, me too. I've had that experience too. This is what it was like for me. And where you can say, oh my gosh, that's really similar to my experience. I'm not alone. I'm not broken. I'm just whatever the label is that you want to use or whatever the experience is that you mm-hmm. want to use. Like this is this is normal to feel this way mm-hmm. when you've experienced this or this is who you are. Mm-hmm. This is part of your identity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm even going to push back a little bit about like the, the use of normal because Please. like, cause, cause norms mean, I don't know, norms get like real tricky sometimes. And sometimes like when people like are like that, they're verged from the norm, then like even within groups that are marginalized, folks kind of give them a side eye. And so I think that it's for me at least, right. I think meeting other people like shows that X, Y, and Z is reflective and like in someone else, right. Like they're going through it too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for pushing back on that because you're right. A lot of that language is what leads to marginalization. The Mm -hmm. idea of normal, the idea Mm -hmm. of the colorlessness, as you said, 
Mm -hmm. or, you know, the ableist ideas that we have in our society of Mm -hmm. what is expected and and what the default setting is. And there is no Mm -hmm. default. There is no default. At all. At all. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So you were talking to earlier before we started recording Mm -hmm. about a group that you're involved in called Evolving Faith. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about their purpose and your purpose, which is to help people continue to evolve and to discover their identities and to allow those parts that we stuff inside of ourselves to Mm -hmm. kind of come to the surface and feel comfortable Mm -hmm. with those and Mm -hmm. find community. Mm -hmm. How has that helped you? How has that helped others that you've Mm -hmm. observed? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. So like, I love evolving faith. So I loved evolving faith even before I was involved in it. Right. Um, you know, one of my dear friends, like Jeff Chu, is one of the co-curators of this project, um, as well as another dear friend, Sarah Bessie. And, like, it's just so funny, like the people who, you know, at some point in time, like, you know, were folks maybe who you knew kind of far off, but they like you get to know them better over the years and they become your people. Like, yes, yeah, Sarah and Jeff, my people. But the thing that I love about like this project in particular, so Evolving Faith is a conference. And it started to be like this thing just for what it sounds like, people whose faith was evolving. So particularly for those of us who are within the Christian tradition, but not exclusively so, you know, over the last several years, like people have questioned more because there have been more resources and more outlets for them to do that questioning. It's like, why do I believe this thing? Is this something that's in alignment with like my sense of ethics? Like it does my faith like come together with justice? Like there's like, just a place for people who are wanderers and wanderers um, needing to find community, needing to find a landing space. And I think that that's what Evolving Faith offers. And so it is a conference, right? Like, you know, it's, you know, traditionally met in Octobers. Um, last year, we took a year off um, after having done um, a year of digital content when COVID first broke. Um, and we're going to be doing things digitally again this year. But it gives people honestly, all around the world, because we do have a global audience with this, the opportunity to bring the questions to the table and to hear some like really, really like incredible like thinkers and speakers from different traditions, like talk about like faith and belief. And well, depending on like how it like things work out, talk about it. Like, so in the past, like in our in-person gatherings, there were breakout sessions. We're trying to figure out like how we like do that in a, in a digital space um, this year. Um, but one of the things that I had the privilege of doing is witnessing our BIPOC community. So I was BIPOC spiritual care leader, um, or been that since 2019. And I just took on a role to do community cultivation a little bit more broadly. And the dope thing is like, you know, we found ways to connect digitally, even though we were in all these different parts of the world. Mm. So we'd sit and talk about like these sort of like existential questions about faith and belief and you know, racial identity um, and how like, you know, faith had an impact on that and families and like all this stuff. And like, that's why I love it. It's like, we're talking about like real stuff that we've wondered about and wondered how our faith fits into it or how the changing ways that we believe can bring these other parts of who we are into the conversation. Like, it's just like so cool. Yeah. Um so I'm like just super pumped about this community and 
and I do say community because it's like people are amassed and have stayed with this conference for a year and they've come back. And over the course of the year, now that we've like, you know, done a little bit more with our digital platforms, people are in conversation and like, want, like looking for resources together. And so like my new get job with them in particular is to figure out, it's like, all right, so how do we actually make this more communal? How do we make this a little bit more connected and help people feel like, this isn't just a place that I bring questions, but these are my people. And like, I know their names and they know my name. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that that is an integral part of our identity is Mm -hmm. having a community, having a place, no matter how big or how small, where we can say, I belong here. I think belonging is Mm -hmm. essential to us as humans. Mm -hmm. And I think it shapes our identity. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel? Because I know those are two big things that we often lose when we leave high demand religion, our identity and community. Mm-hmm. How do those things play together, community and identity? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one is reflective of the other and the other is reflective of one, right? Yep. Um, so, I mean, our identity, so much of who we are is in relation to something else. And that makes it really, really freaking hard when we leave these systems because it's like, you're like, well, what do I reflect? If I am not this, then what am I? Mm. And depending on like, I like what you said, like high demand religion. Like, I love that. Like, that's good. Um, but like, that's when all you're in Steve those... Hassan. I can't take credit for that. That's all Steve Hassan with his work. Well, thank with you, Steve Hassan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I appreciate that, that concept because they're like, and when you're talking about high demand, like, I think you're talking about the ways in which that culture demands that you look and comport yourself a certain way. And so when you start asking questions and those questions lead to you living and looking differently, you no longer reflect that community, but you're wondering like, well, what do I reflect if not this, especially if it's been something you've been involved in like all your life. And so it's hard. It's really, really, really hard and scary and heartaching. And the thing that people like shed tons of tears about and like, because you wonder, well, where do I go? For some folks who find themselves like really like embedded in these communities, like you don't really know what exists outside that bubble, especially if you live in the type of context where it was vilified. So I, even though I grew up in the Black Baptist tradition in terms of my church, I was um, put in an evangelical Christian school for like K through eight. And one of the things that would scare the crap out of us is this like sort of delineation between like, this is the church and this is the world. And the world was always like made to seem super scary. And so when it came time, like even as a kid for something like high school, where I was going to a public high school, like I was no longer within the protective confines of like a Christian environment. And it made it really scary at first because I was told that the world, quote unquote, was evil. And And you have to like get over that. I mean, it's terrible for kids to have to think that. I mean, there's lots of really, really messed up things that happen in that context. But like no one should fear what is outside of their bubble. And I think that that happens to so many folks whose identities are formed within like these high demand religious spaces, because in order for those things to like maintain and build power, because it's like toxic exercise of power, they have to vilify things else because you would spend your time and resources and money 
like in these other spaces instead of there. That's why you like, I don't know, like, you know, listeners, if like you've heard people like knocking things that are just like ridiculous, right? Like yoga or movies or like, you know, other forms of like belief and practice. It's because they want your resources and they want your time and your energy. And so they vilify all these other things. Like you won't be split. You can give your all to them. Yeah. No. And that definitely happened in my faith too. I was raised Mormon Mm -hmm. and, you know, everything outside of Mormonism, we were supposed to be in the world, but not of the world because Mm -hmm. out there bad things happened. So I was, I was afraid too, that I would find people who were not honest or people Mm -hmm. who would take advantage of me. And Mm -hmm. the really sad thing was, is actually that was happening a lot in my congregation where I was being taken Mm -hmm. advantage of. I was being lied to. Mm -hmm. I was being manipulated and Mm -hmm. abused in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. but I was taught that that was safe and that was normal. And that actually the real horrors, the bad things happened outside of that Mm -hmm. bubble. And so it was absolutely terrifying Mm -hmm. to leave the bubble. And it's, it's so true. Like Terry, like I am just grateful for that bit of like your story you shared, because that's reflective of so many people. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, and this is why I like, I think that it really is important as we talk about like faith evolutions and faith shifts, however it is that you term it and deconstruction, like it is so incredibly important for us to talk about the violence that happens in these religious spaces, because what's violent has become normative. And we don't know that it's wrong because people have framed it as something other than what it is. And this is where it's important for folks like you and me and like those listening to be truth tellers, because, you know, it's not the world that was many people's like experiences of a first sexual assault. It was the church. It wasn't, you know, the world quote unquote that, you know, took people's like financial resources and exploited them. It was the church. Mm-hmm. And so we get to talk about these things. We need to talk about these things in order for us to move forward in healthier ways. Absolutely. I do have a question that comes up right now, which is when we're being vocal and when we're talking about these things in public, often there is this ideology that kind of comes from abusive or dysfunctional family structures Mm -hmm. of we keep the secrets. Like if Mm -hmm. we're going to be loyal, which loyalty is often a value for many of us, if we're going to be loyal, then we don't talk about the bad things that happen. We don't make our families look bad, or in this case, our religions look bad. Mm -hmm. How have you grown through that? Because obviously you're a voice and you talk Mm -hmm. about some of these things. How have you become a voice when you have family members Mm -hmm. that maybe who are still in and still Mm -hmm. believe and that you love and you are loyal to, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. you also want to be loyal to yourself? Mm -hmm. Sorry, that might be convoluted. (laughs) It's not, it's not. It's actually really, really clear to me. So, I mean, part of it is my commitment to truth telling is just that. It's like, I will tell the truth. But what truths I share and how are are connected to consent. There are some stories that are mine alone to share, and I will share them. And then there are other stories that are complicated by, you know, what people consent to be shared based on perspective. And, and yeah, and so there are certain things I just don't talk about. So I'll even use my parents, you know, as an example. My parents are in very different places, like, as it relates to, um, just their positions on LGBTQ inclusion, et cetera. And so I have my father's consent to talk about our journey. Like he has told me explicitly, like he kind of given me kind of carte blanche consent. He's just like, 
talk about it. Like if it helps people grow, like, and they can learn from like my mistakes here, talk about it. That's not consent that I have for my mom. And so like, there are ways that I just don't speak about my mom and our processing through things in our work because she's a very private person. And, you know, and so the ways that I navigate things around our story together is different from with my dad, because at the end of the day, I do have loyalty to my parents, good, bad, or indifferent. However, there are things that have nothing to do with them that I'll just like tell all the business. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you're never going to like, even if you're like the most excellent storyteller in the world, we have so many stories, you're never going to tell them all. And quite frankly, not all stories are for public consumption. Yeah, I saw your post today on Instagram where you were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, there are some stories we need to sit with and we need to process quietly and then decide what we want to share from that. Mm-hmm. That not everything needs to be shared as we're processing it. Mm-hmm. Let's go there really quick. How yeah. do you decide what needs to be shared and what doesn't need to be shared? What needs to be processed alone and what can be mm-hmm. processed in public? I mean, I think that depends on who the person is. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, like I think about, you know, there are certain things that I know that just aren't going to be fruitful for other people to have or to consume. Or like, quite frankly, we don't have the intimacy for me to like share those things. So I don't. That's what I have like my group text for, what I talk to my fiance about, like what I talk to like my like family and other beloved, like trusted people about. Everyone doesn't need to know the all the inner workings of my life. That's actually really unhealthy. And mm-hmm. I think that social media like helps people kind of get duped to thinking that that's like, okay. It's like, people don't need to know what you have for every meal. No one cares. Mm-hmm. And if they do, like, we need to talk about like why their energy is like behind what you're putting in your body, like for every meal. Like that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think for me, it's sort of the metric is like, like, will this help someone? Will this help someone feel less alone? And like, I trust my intuition. Like, cause sometimes I like get a feeling in my gut and there's different ways that we call that depending on what our tr- like traditions are. Um, but like when I feel like really intuitively, like this is a thing that isn't just for me, I'll share it. But then there are other things where I think about like, nope, like that, that idea is not all the way baked. Let's put it back in the oven or like, it's just not going to be generative or life-giving or help someone flourish. And so that's not for anybody else's consumption. Yeah. You're tapping into your intuition and, you know, your value is I want to be helpful to other people. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that they feel less alone. And you're tapping into, does this match with my values? Mm -hmm. And if it does, then it goes out. And if it doesn't, or if you're feeling that kind of queasy feeling in your stomach, which is what Mm -hmm. I get when I'm writing a post or something. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, this is for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is not for anyone else. And I get it Mm -hmm. all written. I screenshot it. And then I'm like, Mm -hmm. delete. Okay. We're done. Mm -hmm. Um, you can feel that inside of yourself. This doesn't quite line up. It feels yucky mm. or just like, I get like a stomach ache. I just get like a rock mm. in my stomach feeling of this isn't, this isn't me. This mm-hmm. is me, but this isn't me for public consumption. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, and, and quite honestly, like this is where for some folks, it's just like, wait, does this really happen? But for me, it does. Like I, I am very much an intuitive in that like, I feel like, spiritual energy and so there are times where I think where not where I think I know I feel the Holy Spirit being like girl no hush like or like or like I'm about to say something that's out of ethical alignment with like who I am just because I'm pissed and being reactionary and I'll be like I hear the Holy Spirit be like sis and I'm like mind your business and then we go back and forth and then I don't post that thing (laughs) 
I love that you argue back and forth too. Oh yeah. So like, like I'm no, no, totally no. about arguing with the divine. Like, like I talk back to God, we fuss, I cuss. And like, we get to a place like where consent is like, with God is actually a really big thing for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that also comes to like what I say and don't say and how I move in the world. Like, I don't just think that like God exerts God's will on us, that the divine is just like moving us forward and we don't have any say in the matter. I think that's totally the case. So yeah, we fight sometimes. Yeah. And I really enjoy the idea of having consent with God too, because I think sometimes we maybe have either had relationships modeled on how people think that God works with this Mm -hmm. non-consent and he just like puts his will on you and you have to obey Mm -hmm. or even a narcissistic idea of God Mm -hmm. or an abusive idea of God or a codependent Mm -hmm. idea of God. Mm -hmm. And that gets put on us. And I really like this idea of a healthy interdependence with God. If Mm -hmm. we're going to have a relationship with God that we do it with a healthy, like interdependence with Mm -hmm. an, yeah. So what does that look like for you? You you argue, you cuss, you you push back, mm-hmm. but what else allows you to have a healthy relationship with God? Um, I mean, I think that one of it is one of the things is having like a conversant prayer life. Like I like I actually pray and like, but my praying isn't like, you know, I was taught to pray as a kid. Like I was very much brought in like up in a tradition where it's like you got on your knees at the bedside and you prayed at night. It's like I just talk to God like fluidly, like. I heard it once described as like having a phone off the hook, like, mm-hmm. like God and I are like on like this like kind of open, open call where we just like talk and sometimes we're silent and we're just like doing our things. We're just like kind of co-working and then we'll like laugh about something. And it's just, I think that God is my friend. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, we, there's that song, like I'm a friend of God, right? God, like he calls me friend. I don't necessarily use like gendered language or God often, but like, if God calls me friend, that means, I can call God friend too. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of it is being in a place where I understand that like God is for me. And like, cause I think about what friendship means and friendship means that like, you know, we talk and we do things that make each other happy and we work to honor one another. And so those are things that I look for, like in my relationship with God. And like, when I feel like God is like not doing enough, I'll be like, fam, like, what is this? but I'm not afraid to go there. Like, and I think that that's one of the things that's been healthiest about like my relationship in this season is like, I'm not afraid of God. Mm-hmm. I grew up fearing God and fearing hell and like damnation and like all that stuff. Like, I don't have those fears anymore. Like I, if, if God is for me, like seriously, who's going to be against me? It's mm-hmm. almost like the ultimate, like who's going to check me boo. Like, I'm not, I'm not concerned because I really do consider like the divine to like, my creator is my friend and they are present to me, present with me. And I think conceptualizing God in that way has just helped me have just a healthier relationship to like my spirituality and even like my religious commitments. But like now going to the consent bit though, like if God is my friend, it means that God requires my consent. Like God's not going to bowl over me. And this is actually going to be a chapter in my book about like the consent um, relationship with us and God. And like one of the things that I truly deeply feel is, you know, when we come to an understanding that God requires our consent and there's even like scriptural precedence for this, for those of us who are Christian, 
um, and, and more specifically looking at Jesus, Jesus's ministry wasn't just like a happenstance. Like there's at the start of Jesus's ministry, when he goes to the temple and like brings into, calls Isaiah into, um, into the space, right? Like he's reading from the prophet's scrolls. There is a moment of consent that's there. So even Jesus, right? Son of God, son of God still gave consent to being on this ministerial path. And if, if the son of God can consent, it means that I can consent too. And when people are trying to like erase that and withhold consent in the divine relationship, you need to ask yourself why. And it's often time for them to maintain power. And I say oftentimes it's exclusively for them to maintain power because mm-hmm. there's no well, other reason you would damn up consent. Well, and often I find in those sorts of relationships where God becomes this person that exerts his will on you and you can't, you don't get to argue or cuss or have anything to say in return. Mm-hmm. It is often the leader is kind of putting mm-hmm. themselves in the place of God. No one else can speak to God. It's mm-hmm. just that person. So it becomes mm-hmm. a very abusive relationship and it's between Absolutely. you and the leader. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's like, if we're, if we're honest about it, like if we were to take things out of like this divine spiritual realm and we looked at like the active suppression, the constriction, we would call it abuse. We would call it assault. We would call it all of these things. And so if we're going to call it all those things, otherwise, then we get to apply it to like religious environments and the conditions under which people live there. It is still abuse. It is still violence. It is still assault. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was one of the big aha moments for me is I took what I had been taught about God and put a boyfriend in, you know, Mm -hmm. because he calls himself the bridegroom. For me, I'm heterosexual, but a partner of any kind, Mm -hmm. right? So a partner of any kind, and then allowed allowed myself to look at the behavior I was taught to accept from God Mm -hmm. and from leaders that spoke for them and realized that I would not accept that from any Mm -hmm. other human, that that would not be okay. I would not Mm -hmm. consider that healthy. And it was really helpful to release that idea of that kind of God that would be incredibly punitive for speaking back or having something Mm -hmm. else to say or using critical thinking or Mm -hmm. taking my time to make a decision and not just obeying immediately. Yeah. Very healthy. So was your process really similar? Just, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Like I, um, I got super into like the premise of religious violence. I want to say about 10 years ago, like in practice, like I've paid attention for a while, but actually like naming it as like something conceptually, it was about 2012, 2013 when this happens. And it actually links back to even before I came out, but I had a number of like queer students who did. And, um, I was working as an educational advocate at the time and my kids were naming that, the reason it took them so long to share this part of their identity with me was because they understood me to be like the most religious person they knew Mm -hmm. and they didn't want me to abandon them. And then I remember like sitting at my desk and like my little like synapses were just like firing. It's like abandonment. Abandonment is like a form of violence, violence. Like this is religion. This is religious violence. Like, why are we not calling this for what it is? And so it made me start looking at this as a phenomena, like, if there is a, a, and it is, it's a, it's a very real threat, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you look at like populations of homeless teens who are on the street, 40 to 60% of them, depending on which studies you're looking at are LGBTQ kids mm-hmm. like that. It is violent. It is a violent act. And so like, why I like, it just made me ask, 
why are we not calling this what this is? And that's what led me to, honestly to get my first master's like in social justice. It's like, I'm like, this is violence. Violence means that we need to have interventions and the work towards those interventions could be a thing of justice. I need to go get a master's in social justice. I love how your brain works because I've seen those statistics and I've understood I've understood the connection, but the way you went from this is violence to then there need to be interventions for that violence. What interventions do you find are helpful for people who find themselves having been victims of religious violence and having their identities suppressed or destroyed Mm -hmm. in the course of being raised in religious abuse? How do you find we can start to rehabilitate ourselves or help others to rehabilitate? Welcome to my thesis. <laughs> like there's like legit, like an entire segment of my thesis, like where I go over this. Like I like low-key want to like pull it up and be like, and we do this, and we do this, and we do this. <laughs> um, but I won't, I won't do that, y'all. Um, and at some point I do want to write about this longer form. This won't be in the first book. It'll probably be in the second one, even though I'll introduce some things around um religious violence, like in this first book that I'm I'm authoring. Um <laughs> I mean, I think, God, there are so many things. I know. I feel like I had you on the podcast and I'm asking you these huge questions. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're just doing our best here. We're just doing our best here. (laughs) We are. Give me a second. I'm actually going to pull up my thesis and like look at some of the things I said. Yeah, we got time. Do it. Thank you for being patient with me too as I'm navigating pronouns. And there's a lot of things that I'm actually taking notes of that I'm telling myself, you know what? I still need work here. I totally understand it. Like I do. And this is like work that I had to do myself. So Mm -hmm. like I'm with you. And if like you want to keep being conversation partners about this, let's do it. Yeah. I love that. So changing my pronouns for God, that was something you brought up. And I was like, that is something I need to continue to work on. And the thing is part of the reason why, like, I don't, I worked to not use pronouns for God and it's like stopped a few years ago is it goes back to the whole identity piece. Mm -hmm. Like if we're made in God's image, then that means that like God doesn't have exclusive pronouns. Yep. God doesn't have like a sex. Yeah. That's not a thing. When you brought that up earlier, I was like, you're right. And then I found myself using male pronouns still because it's habit. And then I realized I don't want to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I love it. Okay, I've pulled up my thesis. It's official. Okay, let's go. Okay. So as we're talking about addressing, um, identifying like religious violence and like the sort of interventions, like one of the first things um, that I think it's important is for us to encourage questions and leave room for a response. Um, So the encouraging questions bit is really important. And it's because Oftentimes in religiously violent places, like whether it be a family context, it'd be on a workplace, it'd be in a church, it'd be in like a broader community, questioning isn't something that's desired because questioning pulls at the threads of integrity of that space and causes things to fall. And so like that's something that's like sometimes violently, I mean, and I say violently, I mean, at times it could be even physical violence, you know, physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, financial, like they're are so many forms of violence. I mean, I think about recently, you know, within the last few years, how many Christian workplaces did things like fired staff because they came out in support of LGBTQ people. That's a form of financial abuse. And it's a form of religious violence because they did it in the name of religion. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, 
encourage questions, leave room for response. Like let people share what they think and be in process because it's the first time that people, some people are ever able in their entire lives to ask questions. Yeah. And to not be worried about being shunned by the group or Mm -hmm. like you said, abandonment, that abandonment is a really big threat in high demand religion. Mm -hmm. And a sense of belonging is so necessary for our sense of personal health. Mm-hmm. So that threat of being shunned or kicked out of the group feels, it feels like death. It really does. It feels. Well, in many ways it is. Yeah. Because you have to completely reconstruct your life in in, in many circumstances. Yeah. It is a social death. It is a spiritual death for some folks. Yeah. And it's definitely a death of identity, I think, for many of us mm-hmm. as well, whenever we are ostracized or kicked out of groups, especially the groups that aren't allowed to talk to that person or mm-hmm. admit that they exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredibly damaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's deeply violent. And I'm so grateful that we're talking about this because as my former therapist and I like would chat about, like outside of session, religious violence is arguably one of the most insidious forms of violence that exists. And it it happens on levels, right? Like everything from like war to interpersonal like conflicts and systemic like shunnings like you're talking about happen in the name of religious violence. It's just that it's um, emergent fields of study that's interdisciplinary at best. And so there's still a lot of way that the field is like building itself up um, in order for us to have these conversations a little bit more fluidly and fluently. Absolutely. I mean, this is honestly, this is brand new. This is a like a baby topic, I feel like, even mm-hmm. though religious abuse has been around since religion was created. This is this is such an infant topic where mm-hmm. we're just now barely starting to connect dots. I'm really mm-hmm. honest with my audience about that, where I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I'm just studying narcissism right now and like connecting mm-hmm. dots, or I'm just studying codependency and I'm connecting mm-hmm. dots. I'm using my psychology background to start to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And even still, there's a, a big population in the United States that feels like if you're questioning religion or if you're saying anything negative mm-hmm. about religion at all, specifically white Christianity, that you are the enemy, that that there, I mean, there are threats of violence and things just even pointing out or asking questions about that. Oh yeah. And it's because white Christianity like functions as an imperial concept mm-hmm. and construct. This is also a part, this is specifically like my thesis. Cause I, I feel like at, we could talk for hours. We could, we could, we can keep going on this. Like, this is my jam. Like, this is my jam. This is my tea. Like I am here for this whole meal, but, um, but white Christianity in particular, like it, like, so when I say it, it functions as an imperial construct, like imperialism, right? Like the system that like forms itself does not let there be room for divergence. In order to set up some type of empire, some type of ruling class, it asserts itself and reasserts itself using whatever means necessary in order to make sure that it is what stays on top. And like white U.S. American Christianity has done just that to the detriment of people in the States and abroad, Hmm. because like in imperial fashion, it's done its best to like, you know, engaging degrees of spiritual colonization and spread these little seeds of ridiculousness that are death dealing around the globe. 
Absolutely. And it is intertwined in all the parts of our system here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. too. It's in our justice system, our education system. It's in our media. It's in the Hollywood movies that we watch. It's in our our music. It's everywhere. That's why it's in cities. It's everywhere. There's not a place where you go where religious violence and some of this toxicity where we aren't immersed in some way dealing with it in a primary or secondary fashion. Absolutely. I mean, I have clients who are atheists who talk about uh, religious trauma they experienced in the workplace. And mm-hmm. it, it's a big thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, even think about like, the, you know, something as quote unquote small is like holidays, right? Holidays are major, but like whose holidays matter? Whose holidays get paid time off for, right? Like who, who gets released? Who gets the opportunity to observe? Like that is a form of religious violence. Absolutely. People aren't free to exercise their religion in the same way as Christians. Christians still make up the vast majority of the religious populace. But like those who are coming from places that have been religiously maligned and marginalized, they don't have the same access to like to worship. Yeah, they don't. I was just talking to a friend who's Jewish and she was talking at Christmas about how her small child who's like preschool age, young Mm -hmm. elementary school age is basically gagged during Mm -hmm. Christmas. He's not allowed to speak about anything. He has to just sit there silently and keep mm-hmm. his opinions to himself. So he doesn't ruin Christmas for the rest of his classmates mm-hmm. because he doesn't believe in Santa Claus and he doesn't believe in, you know, the whole nativity story mm-hmm. because he celebrates Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. He, he's not allowed to talk about his beliefs or his ideas on their beliefs. He's just, mm-hmm. he's gagged. And she's talked about how violent that feels for him. Mm-hmm. Cause it is. Like, that's the thing about violence. When it feels like violence, it oftentimes is. And I say oftentimes, there are times where people from dominant cultures feel like something is violence and it's really discomfort. Yeah. It's it's that they are no longer being centered and that the experiences and lives and rhythms of life that are coming from people who are minoritized are what's being looked at and like not having the spotlight on them makes them feel some sort of way and they're like oh is this violence it's like no it's other people being able to share in you know the social power of attention yeah in a way it's group narcissism that we're seeing Mm -hmm. there where we're used to being centered and we're used to having the power and to take that off it does feel like to a narcissist when they lose attention or they lose that that supply of feeling special, mm-hmm. it feels like something wrong has been done against them mm-hmm. when actually it's just, we're moving to a healthy way where everybody mm-hmm. gets to share the power. Everybody gets to have a voice mm-hmm. and it feels uncomfortable for them because they're so used to having that supply to feed their ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I think that happens in groups where whole groups of people are used to being centered and used to having that steady supply of feeling Mm -hmm. special or elite or in power. And then when we start to have power with, when we start to share power across the board, Mm -hmm. we let people have voices, man, that fragility, that, that self-worth gap inside of us like comes Mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. And this is honestly where the performance comes in for some folks, specifically speaking to whiteness, you know, like it, that's honestly, it's a way of attention grabbing again, when people are in the position of the attention being diverted to other folks, when you perform, it's like, well, it's like, I'm performing the right thing. And it's just like, it's like, but have you actually embodied this? Like, has it actually changed the way that you live in the world? Or are we just putting on a show? Mm -hmm. And more often than not, it's that folks are putting on a show because they want the attention back for doing the right thing. 
Absolutely. And let's spell it out a little bit more clearly, even Mm -hmm. because I do have a large white audience and Mm -hmm. I am right here to learn as well. Mm -hmm. What does it look like when we're performing and what does it look like when we're being authentic? Mother of God, (laughs) you're not making this easy today. I mean, like, look, there's not one answer for this. Mm -mm. And it's not an easy thing to come to because quite frankly, it's a, it's a, a degree of interrogative work that people have to do in understanding how white supremacy in all its forms manifest. And like, and that's the thing about white supremacy that people like get messed up all the time. Is they're like, it's about conservatism. No, it isn't. Like I told Terry before I got on this call and I will tell y'all listeners that white supremacy, like in some of its worst exercises, I see in progressive spaces because progressive people do not like to be told they're wrong. Like what I think about like some of the most like abject psychological emotional, spiritual, and even threat of physical violence that I've experienced, it's happened at the hands of liberals and progressives. And it's because there is such a defensive reaction of not I, that people will like violently suppress in all, like everything to make it seem like you are the bad person because they feel like the bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's shame. It's shame through and through. And there is a like, an absolute violent reaction. I mean, I'm talking about I've received death threats. I have told had people like question, you know, my qualifications and education and my competency when seeking me out as like as a resource because I said a thing they didn't appreciate. And it's just like, if you don't go and sit and do your own damn work, like the the, the world is not here just for your taking. The sun does not rise and set on your ass. So like you need to go and figure out how to disentangle yourselves from like this culture that is killing all of us. Release yourself from the perfectionism. Release yourself from the defensiveness. Release yourself from, you know, worship of of certain types of, uh, of, of information getting and seeking. Like release that disentangle yourself from all of that stuff and and do so in a way where you're held accountable by folks and don't go to that defensive place where you're willing to like actually actually ruin people's days and their lives in order for you to have the security of your comfort Mm -hmm. like and there are resources out there to help right like I love showing up for racial justice there are a number of folks who do work at surge who get it right I last night had the honor of sitting in um, a live broadcast of a podcast um, that does work around restorative justice. I'm forgetting the name right now because that's how my brain works. It forgets things sometimes. But with um, Tima Akun, T-E-M-A-O-K-U-N. But Tima actually has written on white supremacy culture for over 30 years and is a white woman doing the work for herself and helping others like get into it. And it like part of what blessed me in that conversation, it was one of the most honest, clear, like self-reflective talks about like how white supremacy impacts all of us, but also white people that I think I've ever heard in my entire life. And it's just like, dear God, like someone gets it who is white and is teaching other white people how to deal with their crap. 
I might have to go listen to that because I'm still deconstructing. I'm still deconstructing things I picked yeah. up in a very white supremacist culture, not just living in the United States, but then living in a mm-hmm. Mormon bubble, which is also very white supremacist. And so, mm-hmm. you know, deconstructing all of those things as they come up, if you're listening to this and you're feeling defensive or if you're feeling, you know, attacked, sit with it, mm-hmm. allow yourself to ask it questions, figure out Process. what's going on. Yeah. Locate like, the shame. Mm-hmm. And understand that, like, as we're talking about this, we're not saying that you are the bad thing. Because, like, that's oftentimes, like, where shame comes from. Shout out to Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because, like, Brene talks about this. And also my friend Matthias Roberts, like, building off of Brene's work, um, does work around this. Like, shame is not saying you were the bad thing. Well, shame does say you were the bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. And when, like, you can feel remorseful, but that remorse is different than shame and that you've understood that maybe you've done something intentionally or not that was wrong, that was harmful, that was not helping people flourish. And it's okay to feel like sad about that and frustrated and even not knowing what to do next, but leaving space in yourself to understand that something needs to be done and you got to go figure that out. But shame, however, is a, it's a completely debilitating force. When people feel shame, they get locked up, right? Like they get like locked into themselves and feel like they have to like sort of stall out. They like can't do anything else and they stay there. Yeah. And then it's like defensiveness happening from there. It's like where folks are fighting and like throwing, like they're just kind of throwing haymakers like right and left because- they're scared mm-hmm. and they're frustrated and they're not doing the process and work to ask why or what other possibilities could be there for moving forward. Absolutely. We get into fight, flight, or freeze whenever we go into shame. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it feels like life or death again, because it feels like it's saying that we're not enough or that there's mm-hmm. again, that there's something fundamentally flawed about us as humans. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad you brought that up that it's not you that is bad. It's the system, the, these ideologies that we're trying to locate and purge Mm -hmm. and just understanding that we pick these up Mm -hmm. from our families, from our religions, from Mm -hmm. society in general, from movies, from Mm -hmm. media, from just all of it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, I have so many friends that say, you know, well, it, I I didn't have the responsibility to put it there. No, but just like your religious trauma, you have the responsibility to locate it and root it out. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that like, as we're talking and like going back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier about recovery, like, and just addressing these things, like this sort of second thing that I would share that folks can do, like whether it's dealing with like, you know, internalized white supremacy um, or, you know, healing from the, the trauma of religious violence, it's cultivating space for process and processing. And when I say process, like it's an understanding this is going to be something you do for the rest of your life, right? Like you're never going to arrive. You'll never be like, yep, got it. White, master dealing with white supremacy, mastered like healing from religious trauma. Like that's not how this works. Nope. That's healing is healing isn't linear. It's like, I don't know if you watched uh, The Good Place. I'm in the middle of watching it right now and I love it. I think I binged okay. like six episodes last night. Okay. Have you gotten to Jeremy Barramy? No, I haven't gotten to Jeremy Barry. Okay. So it's mild spoiler, but not. But like one of the things that comes up in, I think it's maybe like season two, two or three, 
but it's this premise of Jeremy Barrowly and that like things aren't linear. It just like spells out Jeremy Barrowly with all of like the loops and the like what have you. And like that's the same for healing, Jeremy Barrowly. It is like loopy and all over and doesn't follow a straight line. And like sometimes there are highs and lows and dips and like like crosses. Like there's just like all this stuff that happens with it. And it's okay. Yeah. And that's definitely been my experience too, because I feel like you heal a layer Mm -hmm. and then maybe you feel kind of good for a while. Like, okay, yeah, there's a little breathing room, there's a little Mm -hmm. freedom, and then something triggers you again, or you find yourself Mm -hmm. in a situation where you're dealing with the system again, Mm -hmm. and you're having to say, oh, I fell back into my old patterns in this system, even Mm -hmm. though I've healed in this area. Mm -hmm. And so constantly constantly looking for those patterns that we develop mm-hmm. as children to cope and to to make sense of the world and then mm-hmm. locating the ones that really just are not lining up with our values and who we want to mm-hmm. be and what brings us the most fulfillment, peace, and joy. Mm-hmm. And also like, I, I appreciate what you said about like the triggers because like also understanding like, you know, that there are some things that like cultivate space for anxiety in you or like that activate, like, you know, you being in a depressed state and it's, it's okay. Like, you know, it's okay if that happens. And it's okay that if, it, even if it hasn't happened, like immediately after like violence has taken place, it happens like years later because something comes up and just like brings you back to that place, right? You're in that place where you're like right back where like all of the nonsense happened. It's all right. Like it's, it makes sense given what we know about trauma. It's okay if this stuff continues popping up, like, like whack-a-mole, right? Mm-hmm. Like you'll deal with the bowl as it pops up out of the ground. You don't have to shove it down, like just kind of acknowledge that it's there and maybe it'll go back down on its own. Absolutely. I think somebody was telling me about a box where there's, you know, a ball that is, you know, there's a trigger inside the box. And when you very first leave a traumatic situation or Mm -hmm. you very first start to heal, the ball feels really big inside the box. And so it's bumping against that trigger over and over Mm -hmm. again. But over time as we heal, the ball becomes a little smaller. So it'll still hit the trigger, just maybe not as frequently as it did mm-hmm. right after leaving. So exactly yeah. that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So many good things. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and hours and all more. The all of the things. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say as we're wrapping up that you just feel a burning desire to say? Yeah. I think one of like, I'm just like kind of sitting here with like some of these like other points that could be meaningful for folks. So two more things I want to say, like, as we're talking about like recovering from, um, from, from harm, um, from religious harm and from the harm of like things like white supremacy, like you've got to learn because when you learn and you pick up these like different tools for learning, like this is like when things shift in your world it's okay to, to employ different tools, but I think for folks, particularly white folks, it's important to not be appropriative, right? So that this means cite your sources. Like if you read something somewhere, let people know where you got it from. This is not like, let's, let's not, you know, be like certain like, you know, bloggers out there who become authors, like cite your sources, let people know where you got it from. Also like honor the wisdom and say like, hey, this co- like this goes along with citing, but you're saying this comes from another culture. It's not mine, but it has helped me. Know that there are different ways that you can learn, right? It's not just all books and videos. Like there are like 
things that you can do with your body, things that you can do that engage play, music. There's like so many like things sensory like wise you can take in. And those things can help you learn that another reality is possible. And as you learn like that other reality is possible, don't forget to like imagine and play. Mm. Like, you know, we as adults oftentimes get out of a a place of imagining. And I think that moving forward, given like the time that we live in and like the ways that people are continuing to confront this harm, we need to like go back to that place where we're like, where we're going to imagine again, where we're going to think about like possibilities that lie beyond like our present and lean into them and have fun while doing it. Like try and fail and laugh along the way and know that you're going to screw up. You will screw up promise. (laughs) And like, but be okay with that. As long as like, you're like working to be protective of others. And when you get it wrong, like apologize and like, and do so in a way where like you restore like anything that may have been taken for someone, like as they were harmed, like imagine play subvert, but like know that, more exists beyond our current reality and more, you know, exists beyond, you know, the state of suspension that you might find yourself in, like when you're starting to confront these things. So many good points there. Yeah. We're going to get it wrong. I I think that's the one that, that hit me the hardest is we're going to get it wrong because that's the process of learning. Mm -hmm. There is no learning without trying, failing, making mistakes, but learn from your mistakes, get mm-hmm. up again, try again, keep learning. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I really appreciate you saying, and when you do make a mistake, restore the harm, like mm-hmm. restore, restore back what you can take responsibility, mm-hmm. apologize, mm-hmm. and then take it that step further, restore mm-hmm. what was taken. So, and to play, because I think all of us need that reminder, especially in mm-hmm. Western society, it's all about yeah. the productivity and the work. Like we forget mm-hmm. that we're allowed to play as adults. Mm-hmm. No, you got to play. You have to leave room for joy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Life is beautiful when we leave room for joy, when we mm-hmm. leave room for things that just set our hearts on fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And make your heart giggle, right? Because laughter is yeah. like a big part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Thank you so very much for taking time out of your schedule to meet with me and to share your wisdom and just your thoughts and your experiences and the things that you found to be healing. I know my audience is going to appreciate this so much. And we are all looking forward to you writing your book and sharing all of that in written form so we can underline it and write (laughs) comments all over the place. Talk back to me. Talk back to me in the margins. (laughs) That's right. So I can't wait to hold your book in my hands and Mm -hmm. to talk back to you in the margins and hopefully get to talk with you more, you know, person to person and, and in community as well. Cosine. I really enjoyed this time with you, Terry. Like, thank you. Thank you for reaching out of one and then for inviting me like to talk to you and then talk to like this audience. Like it, it, it means a lot. Oh, you're so welcome. Honestly, like I feel, I feel like I got the better end of this deal. Like I'm so <laughs> giddy. This so. is like super fun for me, just so you know. <laughs> oh, good, good. This is fun for me too. I often worry that I'm going to, you know, talk to people too much. I just love mm-hmm. to be in conversation with people. Um, let's let the listeners know where they can find you and all of your incredible content. 
before mm-hmm. we end so that yeah. they can go and interact with you and talk with you more and get your book, like get their hands on your book as soon as it mm-hmm. comes out as well. Sure. So I actually make things super, super easy for people to find me. Um, so it is Alicia T. Crosby or Alicia. I go by both. A-L-I-C-I-A, the letter T, C-R-O-S-B-Y.com. That's my website. Alicia T. Crosby um, is on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. I'm telling you, I make it really Patreon. Like all the things are branded first name, middle initial, last name. Love it. <laughs> That makes it really, really easy. So go follow mm. her on all of those platforms. Everything. Everything. Come follow me everywhere. Yes. Um, and then when I release my podcast, which is like coming in this season, you'll be able to find things about it through all of those websites because I'm going to use all of my social media to um, shamelessly plug my new projects. I love and it. Then and when the book comes to, that'll also be there. Oh, I can't wait. And what will your podcast be about so we can kind of like get excited? Yeah. So my podcast is called Talking to People I Know. <laughs> and it's just that, like, I'm talking to folks about life, love, and liberation. And so mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, wherever the conversations take up, take us as we talk about those things, the things that move them, the things that mean something to them in the world. We're, I'm doing this with like people I'm in community with friends, colleagues, acquaintances. Some are, you know, folks who are high profile or higher profile. Other folks like are high profile in their communities, but like mm-hmm. folks may not know them like in a, in a national sense. Like it's not like everybody is like a New York Times bestseller or like a music artist. Like some folks are community organizers or, you know, they're working like as artists in different ways. Like, I don't know, like I know a lot of really cool people. So I just want to have, just put a spotlight on, on my folks and like let people see like the wisdom that like surrounds me because there's so much that folks have to give and to share. And yeah, I just love my people. So I want to amplify them. I love that. And we'll all get to see those different facets of God as you get to talk to these people. So I can't wait to listen in and to be a fly on the wall and Seriously, thank you. Thank you for your time and for the wisdom and hope that you've given my listeners today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. (laughs) All right, everyone. We will see you next Sunday. And seriously, right now, before you forget, go follow her. All right. Bye, everyone.